We are nearing the end of this series, finally, and it's been an interesting exercise, and I'll tell you what, uh, as I told you guys before, I initially planned this out for about 12 weeks, and here we are a year later, um, but the more I got into it, the more the Lord kept showing me, the more it's like, okay, we need to do this, and so, and I think the timing of it's interesting is how it's all transpired. And hitting the book of Daniel in the month of December the way we did because Daniel is crucial to understanding what's going on in the Christmas story. And here we are in Ezra is where we're going to jump in today. And we're going to talk about Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah. This is after the exile. This is them going home. They're going back to Jerusalem. And then from here, we're going to talk about the seven feasts of Israel. And it's going to hit right in that time frame of where they're going on here in the, in the spring feast. Another exciting thing is the first week of April, Brian Young is going to be here with us again. He comes every year. But that Sunday evening, we're going to do a Seder meal with him. He, one of the things he does, he goes around that. It is, it's showing how that Passover celebration, everything points to Christ. It will blow your mind if you've never been a part of one, how prophetic in nature is. You're going to sit here and think, the Jews do this every year and they don't see it. Like, you just... It's unbelievable. So we're actually going to serve lamb and things like that. I'll give you more details when we get a little closer to that. Uh, but you would definitely want to mark that down. I think it's April 7th or 8th or something, whenever that first Sunday is. Does she? <laughs> we're, we're going to find out. I bet you'll get one for us. You wouldn't know the difference between lamb and goat anyway. There you go. We'll find this one. Uh, probably not. Like probably not. No, it's going to be one giant hunk of meat with the head still on it. We're going to do it right. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So anyway, I'm just excited about that because it's one of the things that was on my heart to do a year ago. And initially when I planned this out, I thought that's where it was going to go and it just never happened. So it's exciting. But when we jump into the book of Ezra, Ezra is all about the building of the temple. You've got these three books that I talked about. You've got Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and they're all in this same time frame. So imagine, if you will, Cyrus is in power. They're still in the Babylonian era, area, you know, Persia and all that, because Persia's taken over. And Cyrus is going to give a command to send the people back to build the temple. In Nehemiah, it's the rebuilding of Jerusalem itself, when Artaxerxes is the king and Nehemiah is his cupbearer. And Esther occurs during the final years of the book of Ezra. So it's kind of sandwiched in the middle, not to get you confused. Because Ezra can be a very confusing book because the way he wrote it is it kind of jumps here and there and everywhere. And I'm going to do my best to kind of clear the mud, if you will. Now, it is confusing. You can pick up on it. If you know the kings and the dates and all of that really, really well, it's no problem. But most of us, including myself, we, we just don't have this stuff memorized in our head. And so when we're just simply reading the book, it's confusing. And so I have to go back and, you know, bring all the dates together, try to clear the mud. But anyway, Ezra himself, they believe, wrote First and Second Chronicles, the book of Ezra, obviously, and the book of Nehemiah. And originally, they believed that this was all one book. In fact, they give Ezra the credit for establishing the canon overall of the law and the prophets and all of that stuff for the, what we would call the Old Testament. And so a couple of events that took place. Remember, Cyrus becomes the king of Persia. We've talked about this a little bit in 559 B.C. In 539 B.C., he conquers Israel. And that's where we saw where they came in there and they took over without a battle. Remember, I, I t Herodotus, 
I'm saying that right. He says that they diverted the river, and it was about knee height, hip height, and they just kind of walked right in. And you saw that story in the book of Daniel, where they're partying and they're handwriting on the wall and all that stuff, and they come in and they kill the guy that was in charge. And they took over without a battle, without any fight. This most bizarre thing. Most Bible scholars assume that there was a war. If you go and read a lot of commentaries, they just they talk about, we don't know a lot of details of the war that took place or the battle. There was no battle. That's just what's odd about it. So he comes over, and then from that point, 538 B.C. is when he is sending these people home. So it is just real quick. It's not a long amount of time. And so they're going to go home, almost 50,000 of them are going to go home underneath of a guy named Zerubbabel. Say that five times fast. Zerubbabel. They're going to send him home. That's about 536 B.C. After he gives the decree, they're going to start going back. Ezra doesn't actually even come into the picture until several years later, like 80 years later. And then another 2,000 are going to come back under him. And it takes till about 515 for the temple to actually get rebuilt. So, and then the book of Esther is about 483 B.C. And I know I'm giving you a lot of dates. You don't need to remember. I'm just kind of trying to give you the order of events. And then Nehemiah, when they go to rebuild uh, Jerusalem itself, is somewhere in that range of 445 B.C., okay? I know that's a lot of dates, but I'm trying to paint you a picture of the overall order of events as best I can. So we're going to pick up where we kind of left off a couple weeks ago in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Now we didn't leave off in Chronicles, but this is going to tell the story of where we're going. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy." So in other words, they sent prophets, they sent warnings. Come on, guys, you need to get straight. And they just blew them all off. And finally, there was no other way around this. This is God had to bring judgment. Verse 17. Therefore, he brought against him the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on the young man or virgin on the age of the week. He gave them all into his hand. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all his palaces with fire, and destroyed all of its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. This is kind of where we picked up, because it's telling us not only why Jerusalem got taken away, why they brought captivity, but it kind of gives you somewhat of an order of events. And it's encompassing several years here. Because Nebuchadnezzar came in, he didn't destroy anything at first. There was actually two different exiles where he took the people away and put them under. And then later they come in and destroy the temple and destroy the city because they basically had no choice. They needed to get rid of every semblance of Jerusalem. And so in verse 22, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus the king of Persia, so we're jumping ahead a bit, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation through all, that his, all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, and here we get into the proclamation, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. He has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah who is among you of all his people. May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Now, Cyrus says that he is going to rebuild Jerusalem and the God of heaven, we'll call him Yahweh, the God of the Jews. Remember, we're in a polytheistic society. Cyrus worships Marduk as the primary deity. 
He does not worship God. He has a respect and an adoration for the Lord. And he says that the, it said the Lord quickened his spirit. And he said that God has told me that I need to do this. But it never tells us where God told him. It never tells us why Cyrus came to this conclusion. It never tells us anything, right? It doesn't say there in 2 Chronicles. Well, let's look at Ezra. Because it's going to basically tell us the same thing. Ezra 1, verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing, saying, now let's pause here for a minute. What is the mouth of the word of the Lord from the mouth of Jeremiah? The 70 years, right? So he's fulfilling that. Here we go. Verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people. May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Now, he makes a lot of claims here, all right? Remember, polytheistic society, they respect the God of Israel. It's just another God. It may not be their God, but it's just another God. He has his gods, they have theirs. He's cool with that. But he says, the kings of the earth have been given to me by God, the God of Israel. He's commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. When? Where? Did God come and talk to him? Did God appear to him? Is it a voice? From, did a prophet go to him? We don't know. But it says that the Lord quickened or stirred up the spirit. He wants the Jews to go home. He wants them to be able to worship. He wants them to have all of that. We actually have a copy of the proclamation. There's this, this clay tablet looking thing. It was a cylinder that has this entire proclamation on it. And one of the things that it says, there's been translated into a book, and I don't have all the saying here, but in that he is actually praising Marduk for the ability to do this for Yahweh. So it's not like he's a God-fearer in the sense that you and I would think. He's not worshiping Yahweh. He respects him. He's another God. So where on earth does this idea come from? How does he come to the conclusion that God is telling me that I need to build the temple for the Jews? I need to build a house for the Lord. And here's the thing. You and I, as our spirit-filled, we can't even get what God's telling us to do right half the time. How is this guy, this pagan king? It's interesting when, again, when you go outside of the Scriptures to see what maybe adds some light to that or will confirm what the Bible says, we go to one of the people we go to is the writings of Josephus. And Josephus, I'm going to read this for you. It's a little bit long, but it's going to shed some light on this story. Here we go. In the first year of the reign of Cyrus, which was the 17th from the day that our people were removed out of the, our own land into Babylon, God commiserated the captivity and calamity of these poor people according as he had foretold them by Jeremiah the prophet before the destruction of the city. So what's he confirming? What we saw in Chronicles, what we, I mean, what we've seen all over the place, plus Jeremiah. He's confirming the word of the Lord. Now, Josephus was a Jew. He was hired by the Romans to write down the history of the Jews. Here we go. That after they had served Nebuchadnezzar and his possible Posterity, and after they had undergone the servitude 70 years, he would restore them again to the land of their fathers, and they should build their temple and enjoy their ancient prosperity. And these things God did afford them, for he stirred up the mind of Cyrus. Okay, we just read that in Ezra, right? We also read it in Chronicles. And made him to write throughout all Asia, which would be modern day Turkey, okay, not the Chinese Asia. Thus saith Cyrus king. 
Since God Almighty hath appointed me to be king of the habitable earth, I believe that he is that God which by the nation of the Israelites worship. We just read all of this, right? For indeed he foretold my name by the prophets. Well, that's interesting. That I should build him a house at Jerusalem in the country of Judea. Now we've got a new piece of information here. This was known to Cyrus by his reading the book which Isaiah left behind him of his prophecies. For the prophet said that God had spoken thus to him in a secret vision. My will is that Cyrus, whom I have appointed to be king over many and great nations, send back my people to their own land and build my temple. This was foretold by Isaiah 140 years before the temple was demolished. Accordingly, when Cyrus read this and admired the divine power and earnest desire and ambition seized upon him to fulfill what was so written. So he called for the most eminent Jews that were in Babylon and said to them that he gave them leave to go back to their own country and to rebuild their city Jerusalem and the temple of God for that he would be their assistant and he would write to the rulers and governors that were in the neighborhood of their country of Judea that they should contribute to them gold and silver for the building of the temple and beside that beast for their sacrifices. How did God stir up the spirit, stir up the mind of Cyrus to tell him that he needs to rebuild him his temple. It's through the book of Isaiah. Written 140 years before the destruction of the temple. It had been left behind 210 years earlier. Cyrus isn't even a, a, like a, a twinkle in his mother's eye yet. Cyrus is not on the phone. And yet it says it by name. Now how powerful is that? Let's look at that verse in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 44. And we're going to go into chapter 45, verse 27. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up the river? Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, and the God of Israel. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Rain down, you heavens from above, and let the skies pour down your righteousness. Let the earth open. Let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the post herds strive with the post herds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or shall the handiwork say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and this maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. You command me. I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens and all their host I have commanded this is like can you imagine being cyrus he picks up the book of isaiah now how do you think he got that if i had to guess i'd say it's daniel doesn't tell us that 
But if I had to guess, remember, Daniel was a, a, a mucky muck in this thing. He was there for, Dar he's been there for all these guys. I mean, for Nebuchadnezzar, he rises to power in every single command. And he taught the Magi. They had the Hebrew Scriptures. And I would almost bet money that Daniel walked him and said, hey, you may want to read this. Start in chapter 44. Just a suggestion. You know, thus saith the Lord, whatever. Or no chapter 44. So that's a joke. You guys are a tough crowd. Must be too rainy outside. Okay. But it's because of this we now know through the compilation of the writings of Josephus as well as everything else that we know how God stirred him up. Isn't it interesting that he used his very written word to give them the command of what to do next? That should be a sign to you and I. That God's word is the foundation of all and anything that you hear from the Lord that does not line up with it, you need to toss. And I don't care who says it. If it comes from this pulpit and it does not line up from Scripture, you need to toss it. So Cyrus here, because he's so moved, I mean, he reads his name that was written down 200 years before he was even born. He reads his name that he is going to do this, so he's moved by God. He's impressed. He's amazed. And so what happens is Cyrus is going to free them. He's going to give them the money that they need to go and rebuild the temple. And he returns all of the items that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple that were part of the temple service. And so... Under 50,000 people are going to take advantage of that. You would think everybody would go, but they don't. No different than today. Let's jump into Ezra chapter 1, verse 5. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirit God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with the articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things, besides all that was willingly offered. They basically took up a big offering and sent them on their way. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasure, and counted them out, and Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Sheshbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. All of them. And what's interesting is if you go back and look of the stuff that was taken from the temple, they happened to line up really nicely. Okay? In other words, they didn't just go out and squander that. They used, they took the articles that were devoted to the worship of Yahweh and they used them to worship other gods. So they weren't just, you know, they didn't melt them down and, and send them into one of those gold things on TV that'll give you, you know, market price or whatever. So in this process, they're going to be led by two people. The first one's guy's name is Zerubbabel. The second guy's name is Jeshua, okay? They're routinely mentioned together, and more often than not, Zerubbabel is always mentioned first. Zerubbabel is going to serve as the governor over Judea. Jeshua is the high priest, so they work hand in hand, okay? Let's jump into chapter 3. We're going to skip chapter 2 because it's just going to list all the names of the different people. They go there for what we're doing. That doesn't matter. Verse 1. And when the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren arose and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. 
Though fear had come upon them because the people of those countries, they set the altar on its basis and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered, daily the, or offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered regular burnt offerings, those for the new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid, they also gave money to the masons and the carpenters, the food and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, to bring cedar laws from Lebanon, to the sea, to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now when this starts off, it says they united as one, as one man coming together. That is a, a, a figure of speech that they are like zoned in focus. Why are we here? To rebuild the temple. And the first thing that they do before they get anything else is they set up the altar and they start sacrificing. Zerubbabel and Jeshua come together. They build the altar. And so, and it says they keep the Feast of Tabernacles. They start up the regular offerings, the new moons, all the feasts. Stuff that they've likely not done since they've been in captivity for the last 70 years. They're immediately going back to the things that they were supposed to be doing all along. And had they simply followed all of these prescriptions by God on how to do things, they'd have never been in Babylon in the first place if they'd kept the land Sabbaths. Now, it says that they also hire masons and carpenters, Right? Brings them in. Why? They need experts in this. They, it's not just going to do it. They hire. They're paying these people. They have money. It's been given to them uh, frequently here. They get cedar logs from Lebanon because of or the people of Tyre and Sidon, which is the exact same place where Solomon got all of that stuff. The same place. So it all lines up nicely. And so they're going to begin to lay the foundation after this event. And this is a joyous and momentous occasion. All the people gather around. Remember, there's 50,000. They're all gathered around them. And so some people cry, some people shout. The old men who had seen the first temple, they cried. The young men who had never seen anything, had, were born in exile, they shout with joy. Because it's just different. For the old men, they watched the destruction of that. Remember, that temple to them basically is God. It houses God. They did not have a relationship with God like you and I have. It's completely different. They had to go someplace physically. You and I are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. God is with us all the time. And just for reference, it does not take two or three gathered together for God to show up. He's there with one. Just throwing that out there. Okay. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's house and said to them, Let us build with you. For we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Eshardun, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel, said to them, You may do nothing with us to build the house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the, the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay, now again, we're jumping everywhere in this timeline here, okay, so it gets confusing. But the bottom line is they show up and said, we have been worshiping your God. Let us help you build it. And that seems like a fine ask until you dig a little deeper. And you realize, yes, they've been worshiping Yahweh as one of the many gods that they have worshiped. 
The worship of Yahweh was specifically set aside for the people of Israel. And if you wanted to worship Yahweh, then you would have to come in as what was called a sojourner, a God-fearer. You would throw away all of that past, and you would strictly become an Israelite, and you would worship God the way that he said. That is not what they're doing. When it says that adversaries come, that word adversaries there is the exact same one that is used in Job, that is the accuser of the brethren. And the adversaries that's used in the New Testament as well. Same thing. It's almost a demonic type thing that is going on here. So there's more underlying the surface. And immediately, as soon as they tell them no, then what do they do? They start causing problems for them. And it, it sounds kind of eloquent that they, they hired counselors and things like that. They got people in there that are becoming a thorn in the flesh. They are out there rocking their world, messing with them, trying to keep them from accomplishing what God had foreordained. All from the beginning. And so here we've got all of this stuff that is going on here, and yet they have the right to be there from God and from the king. They're trying to fulfill what God had laid out. Let's jump down to verse 6. And this is where it gets a little confusing, a little bit more confusing. In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes also, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabal, and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. Rehim, the commander of Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to king Artaxerxes in this fashion. From Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of the companions, representatives of the Denites, the, whatever that is, the Tarpalites and the people of Persia and the Erech and Babylon and Shushan and the Dephites and Elamites and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria and the remainder beyond the river and so forth. Here's the confusing part. is because this letter is likely written 80 years after this event. And so what's happening is there's two kings that are listed, Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes. So this is not, this letter is not written as like not a chronological event of what's going on. What Ezra is doing here is showing that from the word go, they have faced trouble and opposition all along the way. Why are they facing trouble and opposition? Because there is no wall to Jerusalem. Anybody can just walk right in. And so that's what's going on. And so the letters to and from Artaxerxes, which we're about to read, are out of place from a chronological standpoint. But it's going to show this theme. Ahasuerus is the king that is from 485 to 465 B.C. Now that name probably doesn't sound familiar, but the name that does is Xerxes, who is the father of Artaxerxes. Xerxes is the king prior to that. He is the king that is in the book of Esther. Okay? But he's known as this Ahasuerus there, but it's the same guy. Okay, Artaxerxes comes afterwards, reigns from 464 to 424 B.C., and he's the king that reigns from, in Ezra from chapter 7 to chapter 10. Okay, Nehemiah is the cupbearer of Artaxerxes. So the book of Ezra is likely written during the time that Ezra himself is traveling towards Jerusalem somewhere in that 458 B.C. range. But he's simply showing, as a reason for doing this, he's simply showing the opposition that goes on for building the temple goes on for a very long time. Clear as mud, right? See how confusing this is? Very likely because there's going to be intermarriage that goes on. And remember, in Samaria in the New Testament time, they're the half-Jews. And that is why they don't do it. So they're in that reign. It's very likely. We don't know for sure, but very likely. So you guys see how this confusing this can be because this is not chronological. It jumps everywhere. Thank you, Ezra. We really appreciate that. 
okay? So I know it's confusing. I don't have a better way to explain it because it confuses me, okay? And if I can't quite figure it all out, I have no way of explaining it to you any better than what I just did. So I apologize. Just take my word for it. This ain't chronological, okay? Are we all together? All right. There we go. All right, let's jump down to verse 11. Here we go. This is a copy of the letter that they sent him. To the king, Artaxerxes from your servants, the men of the region beyond the river, and so forth. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come out to us in Jerusalem and are building this rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. Now let it be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. Now, because we receive support from the palace, it is not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, and you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, and that they have incited sedition within the city in former times, for which cause this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. Now, isn't it nice of them to warn the king about how horrible the Jews are, how terrible they are? What happens if you let them do this and they ain't going to pay you taxes, they ain't sending no money, they're going to go out there, they're going to be rebellious. If they get this temple built, it's all over. Like you need to think, and we just want to let you know. And why do they want to let the, the king know? Why do they care? Because they're receiving money from the king. They have a financial interest in this. So they're just being good guys, right? They're just letting him know. Verse 17, here's the king's response. The king sent an answer. To Rehum the commander, to Shimshah the scribe, to the rest of their companions who dwell in Samaria, and to the remainder beyond the river, peace and so forth. The letter which you sent has been clearly read before me, and I gave the command, and a search has been made, and it was found that this city in former times has revolted against kings, and rebellion and sedition have been fostered in it. There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem, who have ruled over all the region beyond the river, and tax, tribute, and custom were paid to them. Now give the command to make these men cease, that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. Take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to the hurt of the kings? Now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahum, Shimshai, and the scribe and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews and by force of arms made them cease. Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay, so this here's this interjection showing a specific letter that was sent. One specific example, how one person or a group of people come up against them, send a letter to the king. The king decides to make it stop. Now, Cyrus had declared that they were free to do this. So, from this point in chapter 5, it's going to pick up where we left off in verse 5 and chapter 4. See how confusing this is? Okay, it's going to be in some orders. Now, Darius himself, it says about Darius, but he reigned before Xerxes, who's the dude that's in charge in, in Esther before Artaxerxes, in 521 to 485 B.C. So, he, we're going back again, right? No problem, right? Piece of cake. We got this. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Ido, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Two prophets, ones that we should be familiar with, right? They wrote books, 
We have it written down. So this should be something to you that jumps off the page. Oh, man, I can go and read Haggai, and I can read Zechariah, and I'm going to get pieces of what is going on here. We're not going to do that today, but you should do that on your own. The work of the temple had been stopped from 535 to 520 B.C. During the times of these prophets, it actually resumes. Haggai prophesied, they say, from August to December of 520 B.C., so just a short time. And Zechariah prophesied for two years that began somewhere in October of November of 520 B.C. and goes on for a couple years. But these two were incredibly concerned with getting this temple rebuilt. Read the books. That's what their concern is. And they know because they cannot keep the Mosaic Covenant without the temple. It's impossible. Even the sacrifices they're making currently with the altar being rebuilt really aren't qualified based on the way that God has said it needs to be done. All right, verse 2. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozodak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. At the same time, Tatnai, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Banzai, and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them. Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish the wall? Then accordingly, we told them the names of the men who were constructing the building. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so they could not make them cease till the report could go to Darius. Then a written answer was returned concerning this matter. So here we have another attempt to stop the building of the temple. This is what they're trying to show us. Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Haggai, Zechariah, they're all there. And the governor demands proof that they have the right to build. What gives you the right to come in here and do this? You've been gone. You're not here. Other people are inhabiting this land. I mean, it no longer belongs to the Jews from that standpoint. Um, he demands something, a written verdict, something showing that they have proof to do this. He can't produce this. Now, from the government's standpoint, they're well within their right to do something like this. You're building something here. We need to see the permits. Where are the permits? You ain't got the permits. We'll pay the money, and then we'll get an inspection all of that. So they may have had something like that at one time, but they don't now. So they write to Darius, and here's what that letter says. Verse 6, this is a copy of the letter that Tatnai sent. The governor of the region beyond the river, and Sheth Banzai, and his companions, the Persians who were in the region beyond the river, to Darius the king, they sent a letter to him in which was written thus, To Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that when we went into the province of Judea, to the temple of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones and timber, is being laid in the walls. And this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke thus to them, who commanded you to build the temple and to finish these walls? We also asked them their names to inform you that we might write the names of the men who were chief among you. And thus they returned us an answer saying, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and completed, referring to Solomon. But because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and carried the people away to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to build this house of God. Also, the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple that was in Jerusalem and carried into the temple of Babylon, whose king, those King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon, and they were given to one named Sheshbazar, who he, whom he had made governor. And he said to them, take these articles, go, carry them to the temple site that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its former site. Then the same Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. But from that time, even until now, it has been under construction, and it is not finished. Now, therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build the house of God at Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure concerning this matter. 
Now, this is a well-written letter. They're concerned. It makes sense. They don't know if they're supposed to be there. But it's interesting how it spells everything out from beginning to end. Solomon built the temple. We were wicked. Nebuchadnezzar came in. Temple was destroyed because we were wicked. Then Cyrus said, we can come home and we can build the temple again. And he gave us all the stuff that was taken away from us in the first place. So they have the blessing of Cyrus, but this guy's checking out because he doesn't believe them. So here's what Darius says in response. Then King Darius issued a decree. This is chapter 6, verse 1. And a search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon and at Akmetha in the palace that is in the province of Media. A scroll was found and in it a record was written thus. Now you guys got to understand, they kept meticulous records. They had all of these things. Because remember, in the Persian world, if the law was written and signed, it went on without, you could not, the king himself could not change it. It was the way it was. In the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where they offered sacrifice, and let the foundations of it firmly be laid. Its height, 60 cubits, and its width, 60 cubits, with three rows of heavy stones and one row of new timber. Let the expenses be paid from the king's treasury. Also let the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple, which is in Jerusalem, and brought to Babylon, be restored and taken back to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, each to its place, and deposit them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tatnai, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Banzai, and your companions, the Persians who are beyond the river, keep yourselves far from there. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of, this, of the Jews and the elders and the Jews build this house of God on its site. Tell them to back off. They have permission. Then he goes on. Moreover, I issue a decree as to what you should do for the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense from taxes on the region beyond the river. This is to be given immediately to these men so that they are not hindered. And whatever they need, young bulls, rams, and lambs for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the request of the priests who are in Jerusalem, let it be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. And I issue a decree that whoever alters this edict, let timber be pulled from his house and erected and let him be hanged on it and let his house be made a refuse heap because of this. And may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to alter it or to destroy this house of God which is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue a decree, let it be done diligently. How's that for a response? Hey, we're not sure if they have permission. What do you think? Well, he lays it out pretty clear what he thinks. Not only leave them alone, they have permission, but now take the money out of the taxes in this region and give it to them and give them absolutely everything that they need in order to do this. Whatever they need for the sacrifices, the oil, whatever, doesn't matter. And then he makes a threat. If anybody stands in their way, he says, we'll pull a timber out of his house and we'll essentially impale them. Okay? Now this... Seems like a pretty harsh ask, but if you know anything about Darius, a guy named Herodotus wrote that it, Darius, when they took over Babylon and, and conquered part of the city, impaled 3,000 people that day. So this is no small thing. This isn't an idle threat by him. Now, what's going to happen is they're going to oblige, and they provide what is necessary for the temple to be completed in 515 B.C. The people celebrate, they dedicate the temple, and they immediately have the Passover. And that's where we're going to stop today. We're going to pick up this portion uh, next week. But here's what's interesting. Now look at the hand of God in all of this, because we're all going, but we're trying to find Christ in the Old Testament, right? 
We're watching the hand of God from the very beginning, from Genesis. We've gone through every historical book. We've skipped over the prophetic ones specifically because the prophetic ones are always talking about things that are going on right here, right now. Look at the hand of God. All of this is going on to bring who? Jesus, the Messiah. It's all leading to that. Look at everything that he laid out ahead of time. He wrote the dude's name in a book 200 years before he was born, right? Supernatural book. It's powerful. Amen?